I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to be focusing in on one sentence contained in verses 17 and 18 this morning, but I want to read the whole chapter to put that uh, sentence into its context. The first eight verses uh, consist of the greeting and introduction to the entire book of Revelation. And then beginning at verse 9 through verse 20, we have the contents of the first vision in a series uh, of numerous visions that John uh, sees, that John is given. First we have the introduction to the book of Revelation, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must, must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And now we read the first vision John sees in his exile. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. The resurrection gives us uh, a hope as Christians. And a lot of people misunderstand 
what that will entail, and we want to lay it out a bit this morning. Uh, I know that we all, uh, maybe not even knowingly, long for all that is laid up for us through Christ, uh, glorified bodies, uh, and and, uh, a sinless existence. I know I'm looking forward to a a glorified body. I was really trying hard this week to to lose some weight, and uh, I've been having some success, but it's such a trial. And uh, the reason I did so was because I looked in the mirror, and uh, it was uh, a bit, uh, uh, shook me up a little bit, because this body used to be uh, a pretty good one. I mean, not like, uh, you know, a Greek god or anything, but, uh, you know, I was an athlete. I was, I was all SEC twice when I was in college, but I'm not all SEC anymore, and it ain't coming back, I'm afraid to say. I look forward to uh, a new body because, you know, even as we, as we grow older, we see the decay. Uh, we see that it's not, going to, it's not going to happen for us again. But it is, actually, for those who put their hope in Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth. But even more than that, we look forward to the day when, when there's no more sin. You know, we struggle with sin. We fight with sin. And it, and it often gets the best of us. But slowly but surely, God is working in us creating us more and more in the image of Christ. And we look forward to that that day when that transition, when that transformation is complete. And that's the resurrection hope that we have. Well, as we turn our attention to this word, the first few verses we read tell us that God the Father is concerned about the church. So the Father gave this revelation to His Son Jesus, who in turn sent an angel to communicate it to John. John then bore witness to that vision by sending this revelation around to the seven churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, He was exiled on the island of Patmos, which is just off the Turkish coast. And these seven churches were just inland, and they were uh, along a circular route, so they would have passed the letters along to one another. And there's messages in uh, in the first few chapters for each of those churches, and they would all be reading it and know what one another was up to and and one another's failings and so forth and so on. Now, there were more than seven churches in Turkey and Asia, so why doesn't John address all the churches? I think this is an important point to make right here uh, on the front end because even though it's addressed to seven churches, I believe uh, the message is to the church forever and all time. Uh, Upon reading Revelation, you know that numbers are significant, and particularly the number seven pops up a lot. We encounter it several times here in chapter one. We've got the the seven spirits, the seven stars, the seven lampstands, and as we continue to read through, we'll see seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven angels and seven plagues and so forth. Seven is a number that symbolizes completeness. So when John receives this revelation to the seven churches. This book is addressed even further beyond those borders to all churches everywhere. These churches are symbolic of the complete church of Christ. So this revelation that we're reading this morning is for all the church throughout the ages. And the revelation that we read this morning is for us today. Verse 3 tells us that anybody who reads this and, and hears it, and keeps it, will receive a blessing. So hopefully we've already been blessed just by reading chapter 1. This entire book is written for the benefit of the church in every place throughout all time. 
Well, it's important to know also the, the, the context of this revelation. John received this revelation during a time of persecution caused by the separation of the local, local churches from the legal protection Rome afforded Judaism. So up until this time, uh, the Christians were seen as a, a sect of Judaism. But there was an outcry against this. The, the, the uh, synagogue leaders did not like that. They instituted an oath formula which demanded the members of, of local synagogues to curse Jesus of Nazareth. So they became separated from the synagogue system and therefore they were not no longer under uh, the laws that protected them. And also during this time, from the time of Nero to Domitian, this was probably written during the time of Domitian, about 81 to 96 was Domitian's reign, so this was written towards the end of his time. Uh, emperor worship was a big deal. Uh, people locally would have demanded that, say for instance, that Christians would say Caesar is Lord. They believed that Caesar was God. And if you did not say Caesar is Lord, then you could not be in uh, a guild, I guess what we would, we would think of as a union. And therefore you could not get a job. That was very important back then. So Christianity was out of favor with the government. It was out of favor in society at large. There were enemies of Christianity who wanted to destroy the church until it disappeared from the face of the earth. And that caused the faith of some people to waver. Others were lapsing into apathy, and their love for Christ had grown cold. And then there were certainly those who just couldn't take it anymore. And so they committed apostasy. Now surely, as we think about that context, we can see the parallels between the church then and the church today throughout the world. We see just this few days ago, the massacre of Christian students in Kenya, the beheading of Christians in the Middle East over the past few months, and the culture wars we're experiencing right here in the United States, where society at large is increasingly hostile to traditional Christianity. What, what John's saying here is applicable to us, where we live today. And it's important to note that context and to know that John receives this revelation to pass on to people who were having a hard time, who were afraid, who were finding it difficult to live in the culture in which they, in which, in which they lived. But notice the first few words of verse 1. Tell us that this is a revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's, it's not just uh, words, it's pictures. It's, it's, uh, it's the opportunity to see Christ in all of his glory. In the midst of all their difficulty, their tribulation, their doubts, their fears, and the, uh, the thing that God says Christians need most is a vision of Jesus Christ to see who he is and what he's done for them. Leon Morris writes in his com commentary, To all outward appearance, their situation was hopeless. But it is only as Christ is seen for what he really is that anything else can be seen for what it really is. So for these persecuted ones, it was important that, the first, that first of all, the glory and the majesty of the risen Lord be made clear. For everyone here today, just like Leon Morris says, it is important that first of all, 
the glory and the majesty of the risen Lord be made clear. And so we turn our attention to God's Word this morning. To see this first vision in, in what uh, verses 9 through 20 show us about the glory and majesty of Jesus, the risen Lord. What a comforting vision that it is to people undergoing difficulties because of their Christianity. Because maybe they thought Jesus had abandoned his church. You know, here they are trying to follow Christ and finding it difficult at every turn. But no, what do they see? They see Jesus walking amongst the golden lampstands. And the golden lampstands, he tells us at the end, are the churches. He has not abandoned them. On the contrary, he is right there with them. And he holds the stars, which are their leaders, in his hands. So Jesus has not abandoned them and, their, and, and, and his church. But the important question we want to ask is, who is this one who walks among the golden lampstands, who, who is present with his churches? If this is a book, uh, uh, if this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and we need to see the glory and majesty of Jesus, then what does this passage, this particular passage, tell us of the glory and majesty of Jesus? Well, that's where we turn our attention to verses 17 and 18. Fear not, Jesus says. These are the first words. John receives this vision, uh, and Christ appears to him, and he uh, comes undone. He falls on his face for fear, but Jesus puts his right hand upon him, which is a, a sign of comfort. and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Truly comforting words. Let's break it down uh, one phrase at a time. The first two designations we have, uh, the first and the last and the living one, refer to Jesus' divinity. Jesus is God. First of all, the phrase, I am the first and the last, is used by God three times. In, uh, in words to and through the prophet Isaiah. And here's one example. I've given it to you on the outline. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. That's a pretty comprehensive statement right there. He goes on and says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. So what he's saying is, if you can find someone who is a God like me, let them stand up and say it. And let them tell you what's going to happen in the future. And God goes on, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? See, you've already experienced it. You've already seen that I could declare what's coming. And you are my witnesses. You've experienced it for yourselves. And then he says, Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So when Jesus reveals himself to John in this vision, first thing he says is, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Or the Alpha and the Omega. Either way, he's identifying himself as God. This designation refers to his eternal power and eternal existence. Richard of St. Victor paraphrased these words in this way, and I've given that to you on your outline as well. I am the first and the last, 
First through creation, last through retribution. First, because before me a God was not formed. Last, because after me there shall not be another. First, because all things are from me. Last, because all things are to me. From me the beginning, to me the end. First, because I am the cause of origin. Last, because I am the judge and the end. See, everything begins and ends with Him. This makes Jesus the ultimate priority in all creation and beyond. Now, people today want to treat Jesus like He's one of the many options out there in the realm of faith and spirituality. But that's not what Jesus Himself claims. No, He is the first and the last. Everyone who has ever lived will ultimately and finally have to give an account of themselves to Him. And there will be no other options after that. President Harry Truman uh, had a plaque on his desk made it made this phrase famous, the buck stops here. And, and what he meant was that he was not going to pass the buck. In fact, there was nowhere else to pass the buck since he was the highest authority in the land. The buck stops here, he said. And that's true of Christ. The buck stops with him. There is nothing beyond Christ. He is the ultimate authority. He is God. And everyone will ultimately have to answer to him. He goes on to say, also, not only is that he's the ultimate authority, the beginning and the end, but he is also the living one. And, and just as the first one spoke to Jesus' divinity, this one does too. This is an allusion to the covenant name for God. God in Exodus 3 appears to Moses at the burning bush and uh, tells Moses to go and free my people. Uh, and, and Moses says, if I go and do this, you know, who, who, who am I going to tell him sent me? And God re reveals his name to Moses, the name Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew verb to be. I am, God said. I am is my name. I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. It speaks to his existence. He is the ever-living one. He has always existed, and there never was a time when he was not. And that is so much his character that that's his name. And since Jesus is God, he says, I am the living one. And this makes the next statement, number three, most shocking. I died. The living one died. The one who created life, who gives life, who is life, died. When God created the world, the world did not include death. Death was not meant to be. Death is a result of the fall. Death is a result of mankind's sin when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. And because of that sin, death and decay entered the world. The world was put under a curse. So now our wonderful young bodies get older and older and decay and break down. Everything breaks down. Death is a penalty for rebellion against God. A judicial sentence for our sins individually and collectively. So how is it that the living one, the first and the last, died? Michael Horton says, no one really dies of natural causes. 
but of the most horrific and unnatural cause. We die because we have rebelled against our Creator collectively and individually. You see, death is not right, as we've been saying. It's not the way things should be. We know it and experience those feelings when a loved one dies or when we face our own death. We fight it. It is our enemy. And we try to sanitize it and push it to the side. We say things like, he or she passed away. We don't want to say died because it's so stark. And puts it in our face. But you know, we cannot escape the inevitability of it for all of mankind. Because everyone is a sinner by birth, we are all subject to the judicial sentence of death. Now, if Adam had never sinned, then he would have lived forever and we would not be subject to death and decay as his descendants. But he did. And we received a sin nature and we sin as a result, as we said during our confession time. Well, enter the living one. He became one of us. He took on human flesh and lived a completely sinless life. And then, willingly, took on himself our judicial sentence of death. He died. But it was not for his own sin because he had none. It was for our sin. He, the living one, died. But behold, it says, look, Verse 18, Behold, look at this! I am alive forevermore. He was raised from the dead. Peter says something interesting about Jesus in Acts 2.24. I love this. In his uh, sermon, uh, when he's proclaiming Christ there at the beginning uh, of Acts, he says to the crowd, uh, speaking about Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's a great phrase. It was not possible for Christ to be held by death. Why not? Why was it not possible for death to keep its grip on Jesus? It's because Jesus was sinless. See, he fulfilled all righteousness. All his life he never sinned and thought, word, or deed, or even the attitude of his heart. He did not commit sin. He did not omit any duty. He always loved his heavenly Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he always loved his neighbor as himself. It's, it's, it boggles the imagination because we're so far from that. You see, you remember, death is a judicial sentence for sin. We sin, therefore we die. But he had no sin. Therefore, death could not hold him. And the fact that he bore the sins of his people on the cross was itself an act of obedience on his part. See, he laid down his life, he says. No one takes it from him. He lays it down. He's got authority to do so. He subjected himself to death. It was an act of obedience for him to do so. He did it on purpose. That's what we, what we, we, we are affirming when we say, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He sent Jesus to die on the cross and He sent Jesus to lay down His life. So when Christ did that, it was an, uh, once again an act of obedience. And because He was 
sinless and perfect in all that he did, the grave had no right to Jesus. Therefore, he rose again. If he does not rise again, Christ still remains in the grave, then that would indicate that sin and death had a claim on him. It did not. And therefore, because of his righteousness, he is vindicated by the resurrection. He is shown to be the Son of God, perfect in every way, and have accomplished everything that God sent him to do. And the resurrection just says, yes. It's a great yes from the Father to the Son. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, our faith is in vain. It's pointless. In fact, it's futile, and Christians are to be pitied if Christ did not raise from the dead. And it makes sense, because he would be an ineffective Savior if he were not risen from the dead, because that would mean he was a sinner and subject to decay and judicial sentence. He died, but behold, he is alive forevermore. It says, behold, look at it. Jesus is alive forevermore. The resurrection is vital, and we must see it. Do you know why the stone was rolled away? You might say, well, so Jesus could get out. No, it's not so Jesus could get out of the tomb. You remember when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection? Where are they? They're in a room with the doors locked, and Jesus comes through the wall. So Jesus could have gone right out of the tomb. He could have went right through that rock with no problem because he has a, a glorified body. He wasn't like a spirit, something ethereal. He was physical. He met with them. He came through the wall. He met with them. He ate fish. He cooked fish. And they touched him. So he was physical. But he had this, he had this glorified body. It was like a, a lead going through water. Something more solid than even the wall. Something we can't even imagine. And when John sees it in his vision, he falls on his face and he's, he's afraid because it's so glorious. And so the reason the stone was rolled away was not so he could get out, but we could go in and see that he's not there anymore, that he's alive. The resurrection is of vital importance, and we must behold it that he is alive forevermore. Everybody here has a representative. This is what's so important. A representative, a covenant head, someone who, and what we're talking about when we're talking about Adam, he represented mankind, and he sinned, and therefore mankind is subject to this judicial sentence of death. And that's why we all die. But a second Adam appeared on the scene, Jesus Christ. And if we turn from sin and put our trust in him as our new representative, then his sacrifice on the cross is for us. His resurrection is ours, and our bodies will be glorified like his. See, whatever, whatever we lost with Adam, with him as our representative, if we change representatives, then everything that is Christ is ours. Forgiveness, cleansing from sin, imputed righteousness of Christ to us, and the promise of a resurrection. Romans 6, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What He secured can be ours through faith. And that's why Jesus can say the final thing that He says. I have the keys of death and Hades. Have you ever had your teenagers uh, borrow the car and uh, then they come home and then they go off in another car and they forgot to give you the keys to, to the first car? You don't have another set of keys? You can't do anything. When you've got the keys, you've got the power. And that's what Jesus means here. He's got the keys to death and Hades. He's got the power over it. He's got the authority over it. Now, Hades is not hell. Hades refers to the grave or death. It refers to that period when our souls are separated from our bodies. Uh, you know, some souls go to heaven. Their souls are there, but their bodies are still in the grave. That's, that's Hades. They're, they're dead. By rising from the dead, Jesus conquered death. And he has the authority over it. When he returns, because he says so, death and Hades will have to give up their dead. All the dead that they have held. And because he has the keys, what he opens, nobody can shut. And what he shuts, nobody can open. He opens the gates of death when he pleases and the gates to eternal happiness when he pleases, and sometimes the gates of eternal misery he, he's pleased to open to some. Maybe not pleased is the right word. He's the judge of all, and from his sentence there lies no appeal, and that brings us back to him being the first and the last, the one to whom we answer to. He has the keys to death and Hades. We don't have to uh, worry about death as Christians. That's what we're excited about. This is our resurrection hope. Our ultimate hope is not simply that we will die and our souls will go to be with God, which is great, but that's the uh, intermediate state. When Christ returns, then our bodies will be raised from the grave and reunited with our souls, and we will live a glorious, sin-free, physical existence in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no distinction between the two, between heaven and earth, because God will be there. We will see Him face to face and be able to, without fear, come, come right up to Him. And we will have a perfect relationship with everybody else. The person who through faith makes Jesus his or her representative over Adam will live forever just as Jesus Christ lives forever. And that's why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't know that hope today, turn to Christ. Look at Him. Behold Him. And ask Him. Ask Him to be your Lord and your Savior. And you too can know that resurrection hope. Let's pray together.